Well, it's great to be with you this morning, and I'm so thankful uh, for those prayers, because especially for today, because we are embarking on a very challenging topic this morning. As you can see, we're going to be discussing this morning a topic that, I, that the text brings up concerning the issue of being devoted to destruction, this issue that happens in the Old Testament conquest. Probably one of the more challenging uh, circumstances that arises out of the Old Testament conquest, and probably the subject that I would say, as, as I started to think about studying the book of Joshua, realizing we've got to talk about this, thinking to myself, yeah, I know how to talk about it, but how do you preach devoted to destruction and then, and then, and then leave everyone with encouragement? So that is the duty that the task this morning is to try to wrap our mind around God's instructive element to the Israelites during the conquest in a way that we can learn the lessons that God desires for us to learn and we can go away talking about a very challenging subject, one that many people wrestle with in regard to these concepts of their own personal theology of God. Such as, how can God instruct the total annihilation, man, woman, child, beast, of various civilizations at a particular point in time and still be good? Now here's the challenge is, there are so many difficulties like these theologically, but one thing that we instruct from a Bible study method is that we understand is that Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture, that just because God challenges the Israelites to do these kinds of things, that we have to calibrate our mind, that there is a sense that God is doing something good and just. At the same time, he's doing something difficult and horrific in the life of people. Others have often come to this instructively as they've studied the issue of being devoted to destruction in this command. And they will say, look at there's such a dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it appears at the conquest that you have this God of, of law and retribution. But it's so different in the New Testament that you have a God of grace and truth and mercy. Well, I would challenge you this morning that our God does not change. Therefore, our theological framework to God cannot be calibrated by a moment in time where he gives instruction so that we can make sense simply to say that God is okay for being God. He is a God of grace and mercy in the Old Testament as much as a God of grace in the new. He is a God who holds people responsible for activities and moral value systems that he continues to, to watch, to monitor, to be judge over, over the entirety of the world. Challenging uh, this challenge this morning of the Joshua chapter 6 Verse number 17, when Joshua goes into this battle as we talked last week, and it says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now you'll notice the subtitle this morning, How to Handle the Issue of Harem. Okay? Now, 
I want us to take this thought with us that reminds us of a very important lesson as we talk about this subject of God allowing certain people groups to be devoted to destruction, and it's this. That a lack of devotion to God's word and ways was, has serious consequences. If there's one thing in studying this particular situation and the, the conquest of the land is that we remind ourselves that when we don't do what God says we should do, there is huge ramifications for us in our life. That was as true to the people of the Canaanite lands. It was as true to the people of Israel. It is as true for us today. If we lack in that devotion to the word and to the application of his ways in practice, we could find ourselves in a predicament where we are not in God's favor. Now, by God's grace, aren't you thankful for this? That every particular time that you go in sin, that all of a sudden, he just doesn't harm you. He just doesn't destroy you. You realize your sin and my sin gives God the right to, to judge us justly. But I would want to carry this idea, this thought, that I think is embedded in the reality of this command to devote everything and everyone and every, and every animal to destruction. Well, first, in order to explain this, we're, of course, this morning, we're going to take a, a various uh, group of scriptures, some different ones. And I want to start, first of all, by explaining this in the sense of the Levitical law. One of the things that you find that, that happens, and you can turn to Leviticus chapter 27, uh, but I want you to notice this in Leviticus 27. Once you get there, to realize he, he uses this word. Now, the word that we're looking at, this, this Hebrew word. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's no uh, effectiveness to you understanding the Hebrew word other than to just understand that as you read about this topic, you will hear people talk about it, and you will hear them using the word, the, the Old Testament Hebrew word for, called harem. Now, in the Hebrew language, it's this guttural sound that makes it. So it's like, ha, harem. Okay? Now, now listen. Now think about this. I would have you try this, but I want you to spit all over the back of the person in front of you. But it's really, I want you to know the word because if you were to go study it and see this and look this up, you're going to come in contact with this English transliterated word that sounds like harem. And every time you hear that word, even in Leviticus 27, what you'll notice is it's the word for devoted. Now watch for it here in Leviticus 27, 28 and 29. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind, shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. Now, the word itself, just so that we can frame the understanding of this concept of harem, this devoted to destruction, is we understand, first of all, that it has a negative and a positive sense to the word in and of itself. So here in Leviticus, it's talking about this uh, sense in which things are devoted to God. Now, in the negative sense, it means this. Whatever element, whatever person 
is devoted to God's use only. And to destroy something so that it can't be used for any other purpose other than God's purposes alone. That's the negative reality of the idea of harem, the devotion. And you, you get this understanding in this Leviticus text when he says, No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind, notice he's talking about even human people, Mankind shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. During the midst of the conquest, what you, re- what you recognize as you study this topic is that there were conquest instructions from God passed on and given to Moses and then given to Joshua. One of those conquest instructions were that if you go to a city and they were outside the land of Canaan and you go and say, be at peace with us. And they say, no, we're going to have war. He says, when you go and make war with them, you will devote every man of war to destruction. They are now mine and mine alone for my purposes in the negative sense of being devoted. They will be devoted and destroyed so that they can now only ever be used in this sense for God's purposes. And then you have another element that says there's conquest instructions for those inside the land, which gives us, uh, in, in a sense, now notice the po- this negative side in Joshua 6, 17. And the city and all that is with- within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. God's use alone through the concept of elimination. You will no longer live and your life is mine And will be used for my purposes. And in this case, God was instructing the Israelites to destroy these individuals in the conquest. And they, in a sense, had the curse of harem put on them. And the reality I want us to really understand of the life of the conquest is this concept. You either obey harem or you become harem. That's what's happening here. You either obey Haram, which means you be devoted to God and all that he says and all that he tells you to do, or you will become Haram. This was not just a people of the land, push pause for a second, because Pastor Ben's coming next week, and this is going to make all the sense in the world, because we're dealing with the sin of Achan, who had taken something of some things that have been devoted. Of course, he's going to shore up everything that I missed in this topic, so I'll leave a few things for you, brother. Uh, but the reality is, is this makes sense for us, and he's saying the negative sense to be destroyed. Now let's look at also at the positive sense. The positive sense is to, to vote for God's use only, i.e. to make something sacred. Now you could do that in a number of different ways. You could say, I'm going to make this particular uh, you, you know, utensil or pitcher or jar uh, that certainly wasn't a holy light bulb. God destroyed it. It got haremmed. I, I don't know what else to tell you. You either obey harem or you become haremmed. There's something about the light bulb. But, but think about it in a sense of being devoted to sacred use. All of a sudden, 
In reality, you take a picture and you say, you're going to bring it to the priest and I want to devote this picture or this particular utensil and it becomes wholly used for sacrificial purposes and for God's use alone within the temple structure of God's house. You could do that in a number of different ways. And we see this, for example, in the same text that we find before us uh, because uh, in Joshua 6, 19, it says, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord in a positive sense. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now notice this. The use of the word harem in the Old Testament language is both the negative and positive sense in the same context. You can be devoted to destruction and you could have utensils or items from each individual conquest that would be devoted solely for God's primary use alone. Now, what's the point of this practice? There is a personal recognition that every individual who would, would, would understand the, uh, the idea of being devoted, it means to set apart something or someone for sacred and holy purposes, for God's discretion of use alone, even if that means that he's setting it apart for destruction by obeying God's designation. Now, keep in mind, this was a circumstance in the Old Testament that the, it, during the conquest primarily, this is not, please hear me, this is not a church mandate. This is not the direction for the church to go practice things like this. This was predominantly instructive to an isolated region of a promised land in which had become so horrific in abomination before the Lord, and it was not a, a practice for doing to any of the conquest of any other land except the promised land. In fact, the Israelites didn't take this practice in the lands outside, which pushed pause again. Tuck this away because the Gibeonites seem to understand Israelite law. There's something going on here that they pick up on. Now think about it in the sense of devoting utensils to destruction or, or elements of your worship to destruction or to sacred purposes alone. When Joshua, eventually at the point where he set up the tabernacle at Shiloh, and, and, and I was there, and it's, a, it's a quite a fascinating spot, but you could look, and it's surrounded by hills on every side. And when you would make a sacrifice before the Lord, you had to be in eyeshot of the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, and you would make your meal, your preparation offerings and sacrifices, and you would devote those utensils, those items to the Lord, and so that they would only be used for sacred purposes. And here's what that meant. You could not just go ahead and say, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to use this pot or this pitcher that I have poured when, when I had this sacred offering to the Lord and devoted it to him and I used it for holy purposes, but tomorrow I'm going to use it for orange juice. You can't do that according to Levitical law. Leviticus 27 says, once an item has been devoted for sacred purposes alone, it can't be undevoted. 
It is assigned and cannot be reassigned. Why? Well, because once you give it to God, to give it, to take and use it for any other purposes is virtually akin to taking from God what now belongs to him and bringing what is sacred down to something that is, is in the mundane. And so those people who would came, and they came to Shiloh, and they came to the tabernacle, and they saw the glory cloud, and they would give their sacrifices, and they would be sitting on those temple tents as they camped around at Shiloh. They would use their pitchers. They would use their, their clay pots. And you know what they would do after they were all done? They would take those pots, and they would crash them on the ground so they could no longer be used for any other purposes. They could not be reassigned. They could not be used for something of the mundane. And overwhelmingly, one of the largest piles of pottery that you will find in some of these cities come from Shiloh. Because the people camped in and around the temple and they would, or the tabernacle, and they would come and make their sacrifices, and they would smash their jars and their utensils that they had devoted to the Lord so that they could not be used in any other such way for sacred purposes, for positive, and then destroying it so it can't be used for any other such purposes. This is the idea of the Old Testament concept of being devoted to the Lord. Now what's at stake in the concept of devotion, they carried, this was carried along with the, the five books of the law, by the way, because when you get, for example, the biblical illustration in 1 Samuel 15, when God tells, when the prophet tells uh, us King Saul to destroy all the Amalekites and devote them all to destruction, and he comes back and he says to Saul, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Isn't it remarkable that in the context that Saul says something like, well, we kept Agag alive because uh, we're, devote, we're doing what he says, but, but the people kept the other stuff. He would not take responsibility personally for obeying the command. Now, it had serious consequences. Remember our statement. A lack of devotion to God's word or his ways has serious consequences. Saul was a king and his, king, his kingship was removed and it was given to another because he would not obey the command to devote the, 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 the cities to destruction the way that God had said. And it, by the way, what the, his lack of attentiveness only revealed something deeper in his heart and God knew that, which is why he wanted David, who was a man after God's own heart, who was going to be more attentive yet imperfect now, here's, the, here's something that I think applicationally we can take away from understanding the concept of devoted things. Remember this. You and I do not make the rules. Okay? Let's get this in our head. We are not the rule maker. We have no ability to. We, have, we, we do not have the wisdom to. We don't have the righteousness and the holiness and perfection of a loving, sovereign, merciful God that can mitigate wrath on a level that can be balanced and just. God alone makes the rules. This is so instructive and important for us because if we think that for one moment I can play fast and loose with God's, his words and his ways, 
Oh, you are, you and I will come to a spot where we will experience consequences we wish we wouldn't have to experience, that we could have otherwise kept ourselves from having obeyed. We are not the rule makers, which means on the positive sense, when God tells you and I not to do something he says we shouldn't do, don't you believe he's got a reason for it? He has your and my best interest at heart. Well, this just so happened and played out in the course of, of any family when a mom or a dad looks at their child and says, well, this is for your good. And they look at you like, yeah, right. I think you take pleasure in saying no. God isn't saying no or even, he, God is trying to say, obey me. I have a purpose, I have a plan, I am much higher than you, my ways are higher than you, and if you and I, as believing people, don't have our mind wrapped around that God is God and we are not, we get ourselves in trouble really quick. You know, this wasn't just a message for the people of the conquest of Canaan. This was a message for the people of Israel. You either obey harem or you become harem. Even God's people were not taken out or removed from the possible consequences of not following God's words, words and his ways. I think we can take this away as well. Think about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, believer, brothers and sisters, you and I, we are set apart. I mean, would you describe yourself as a holy person? God views you with the righteousness of Christ, with a holiness and a righteousness that you can have that is like his. Of course, not, not identical. But we can be holy as he is holy. We can follow his, his words. We can follow his ways. And in doing so, we reveal that we are a different kind of people. A chosen people. An elected group of people. A people who have been set apart for holy purposes and sacred efforts for whose purposes? For his excellencies. So that he might be given the glory that he deserves. Believer, you are chosen and called and elected and will be glorified. You're continuing to be sanctified. Oh, please don't work against God's words and ways. It will be to your detriment. And I think the Levitical Code is a reminder to the Israelites that you can't, when, when you devote something, you don't get to choose what to do with it. When a believer comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ and repents of their sin, guess what they're saying? I am yours. I am devoted to you. I am, I am completely yours. The devoted things don't get to say to the one who they devoted to, but I'll tell you where I want to be used and where I don't want to be. 
You and I have been set apart for sacred purposes of, of sharing the gospel. And when you become his, you don't come to him. If you come to him and say, I repent of my sins, but don't send me to Africa. You can't put limitations on him. When you come to Christ, please know this. If you're not a believer here and you're contemplating this, this is one of the single most serious things you will ever do because you are saying to God by repentance and forgiveness and commitment through covenant, I am yours. Do with me what you will. Use me for your holy purposes. Wherever you take me, whatever job it is, it doesn't matter if it's glorious, it doesn't matter if it's mundane. Use me in any way for your sacred purposes. Believers, do you think that way about your life? Do you say that kind of thing and reiterate those things to God? Use me for your glory. And I don't want any of it for myself. See, the Levitical Code was that constant reminder that those things belong to God and is paramount because by taking them, you steal from the Almighty. And all of a sudden, you become at odds with the God who gave you the command that you wouldn't obey. So the Levitical, the Levitical law and the code is serious to understanding this concept of devoted to destruction. Now let's take a look at the concept of the people of the land of Canaan. Turn if you would. I'm going to flip to a few different places, but I, I want you to start with Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 gives us an understanding, by the way, of this whole devotion to destruction in both the positive and the negative sense. Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10, uh, says this, When you draw near to a city and fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, as we had mentioned. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, then all people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Pause for a minute. Doesn't this just sound a lot like Romans 12? Be at peace with people as far as it depends on you. Now, that doesn't mean in Romans 12 that he says, okay, you can deck them if they're not. Okay? But he's giving concepts of peace. Be at peace. Now, look, follow in 12. But if, it makes, but if they make no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall, you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock, and everything else in the city, and its spoil, shall, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. And thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of, the, of these people that, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Lord your, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, catch this that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. I'll tell you what God is doing. A favor for his people to help them knowing their own propensity of pollution of the world. Now, it's interesting when you think about the people of the land of Canaan. Did you catch this at verse 18? That 
the things that they do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. This was a religiously despicable, sensual, sexually orientated religious Canaanite practices that was permeated within the land to such a degree that was so uh, uh, repugnant before the Lord that he would look down and say, this is just morally despicable. He says, and, and, and worse of it is they're doing it as religion. They're doing it in a way that this is what their worship looks like. And he's saying to the people, you cannot be a people. He called them out, not because they were great, because God alone set them apart. And he said, now you represent me. You represent the holy living of the almighty God. And you cannot practice these things because what you do reflects on what people think about me. Christians being set apart. When you go to your workplace and you go and I, and we don't do the things God has told us to do, and we live in a manner that is worldly, guess who it reflects upon? You can't just say, Hey, how was your weekend? Oh, I, you know, it was great. It was a great time of worship on Sunday. We went with other believers and, hey, I can't stand our boss. You cannot make that kind of jump and have it not reflect upon your devotion to God. There is a connection between being set apart for his purposes that you and I ought to take very, very seriously. And here, the people of the Canaanite land, they were doing practices that were for the sake of worship in such a way that I think that we understand this. Depraved worship reveals depraved hearts that produce depraved behaviors. You can mark this over and over again in the New Testament, especially in Romans chapter 1. Depraved worship will reveal depraved hearts that produce depraved behaviors and activity. Now, why would Moses be writing this kind of stuff? Because he knew he wasn't going to be there. He knew he wasn't allowed. Now, think about that. When Moses, the great leader of Israel, decided to do things in his way, God said there was serious consequences. You're not going into the land. But he calls Moses to write the five books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as a testimony for what they should do when they come to the land. Moses reminds them, by the way, of their Canaanite origin. Now, take for just a moment in your Bible and turn back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 in your Bible. Because it's a very interesting thing that happens after the flood. Here we understand there's this, consequ- there's this situation that occurs between Ham, who is the father of Canaan. In Genesis 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. There was a disrespect 
of the concept uh, of, of, of seeing the unclothed nature of your father. Now, Ham comes in, and now there's a lot of ways that people go to that. You're going to have to study this on your own, but here's what I would say I land just to expedite this. I don't think here what we're dealing with is some, uh, uh, some sexual component that's happening in the life between Noah and Ham. But what we do understand is that he's making light of the very individual that God had, had, had set his covenant with in a sense where it's like, look at this guy, this fool drunk, this foolish drunk. His other brothers come in, see this foolishness, they backwards in and, and, and they put the, the clothing over him so that this couldn't happen. Now, Noah wakes up, Genesis 9, 24, and it says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, uh, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, shall he be to his brothers. Now, remember, Moses isn't going into the land, and Moses is bringing a lineage and a heritage written in Genesis for them to understand where did these Canaanite people's wickedness originate from? Where did it start? And Noah, uh, or Noah curses Ham and says, cursed be Canaan. In some prophetic sense, Noah was able to understand that there was a wicked generation that was going to come from the loins of Ham. Now, just remember this. It's not that the people of Canaan were, were all of a sudden despised because their fathers and their fathers before them and their fathers before them, they were cursed, so, so they, were, they were at a loss from the start. So they could, never, they could never be saved. They were always under the curse, and so of Genesis 9. Well, that's clearly not the case because, because Rahab is saved. But what you understand is it wasn't their father's fault. Is that in fact that they practiced the thing that their fathers did as well. And Noah prophetically understood this is the kind of people. Now you go, for example, to Genesis chapter 10 in verse number 15. Notice this. Canaan, the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and Sinites, the Arvidites, the, the Zemorites, Hamathites. You never thought you'd be able to go through as many ites as this. Notice, afterwards the clans of Canaan dispersed, now interesting, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza in the, in the direction of, guess where? Sodom and Gomorrah. See, the Canaanite people had a significant influence and their debauchery and abominable practices were influenced from generation to generation and end up in even the cities influenced like Sodom and Gomorrah, who even took those to various other levels as well. Now this is really important for us to understand the people of the land, by the way, because if all of a sudden people's disposition is to say, God, how could you? Without understanding the character of the people of Canaan and the moral depravity from which God saw was so wicked and so evil. Now, Probably the one of the most evil chapters in the Bible. And you're going to want to read through it. You might want to try to do it while I'm here. But Leviticus 18 is probably one of the most wicked chapters in the Bible that reveals the abominable practice of, of, of the people of the conquest. And I'm going to 
not read it for you. I'll let you read it on your own, but I do want to encapsulate for us to understand the character of the people of the land. And when we think about abominable practices, this was always connected, by the way, with various components of sensuality. And just as a side note, as you're even thinking about this, I just want you to wrap your mind around this concept. How quickly sin and depravity influenced murder, sexual deviation, and a redefining of marriage. Not that we could understand that kind of stuff in our culture at all. But do you notice this? Genesis 3, you've got Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. Genesis 4, you have Cain murdering Abel. The end of Genesis 4, you have, you have Lamech taking two wives. Four chapters of the beginning of the Bible. You have immediate sexual deviation and a redefining of, I don't need to be de devoted to covenant between one man and one woman. I can do what I want, Lamech says. And I think that ought to astound us how quickly and, 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 and how quickly depravity permeated the heart and soul of every person on the face of the planet. Guys, we are living in a culture of sexual, sensual deviance. The Bible knows about this kind of culture. This kind of culture is dangerous. It's influential because it's physiological components of pleasure and sensuality. Notice, I mean, here in the Leviticus, you go to eight, uh, verse uh, 6 through 19, and you see despicable practices of incest in the family. You would go to Leviticus 18 and 20, you see adultery. Someone's coveting someone else's wife and then taking them. You have the murder of children, of being offered to the God of Molech. You have homosexuality. You have all kinds of things happening with bestiality. You, you wonder why by the moment, for, for a moment, God says, destroy every man, woman, child, and beast. Because of the religious practices of the lands that permeated the world of the Canaanite lands. I mean, isn't this interesting in some mindset to wrap your mind around that because their concept of religious sexual practices that deal with what's going on at a, temp, at a pagan temple of worship. That when you go there and you go, and by the way, I think this is partly what's going on with the prostitute Rahab. She's part of this whole mechanism of worship and she serves a particular function and the scripture records over and over again on purpose, Rahab the prostitute, because this was ritual religious components that she was engaged in. If you had that going on all over the land of Canaan, what would you expect to happen? Children to be born. Now think about this for a minute. Children who for evil, idolatrous purposes are born out of religious sensuality in a way that we don't want them, we just want our religious practices. So what do we do when we have the result of our religious worship that we don't want? Well, we just destroy them. Not that we can get that from a culture we live in. 
Think about the world and how closely connected it is with deviance of sensuality in the culture. I want what I want, and if something comes out unwanted, I'll just destroy it. Every Christian I know should be against abortion. You can't just play fast and loose thinking you can do whatever you want and there are no consequences. Our culture is, 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 is functioning in a way where their devious, evil worship and the practices of them are resulting in the murder of millions. This is why the overturning of Roe v. Wade was such a big deal. God does not look upon these practices lightly. He doesn't turn a blind eye. And he is a God of grace even in the midst of all the despicable abominations that would, that would be encountered in the land. You know what? You might even be here this morning and you were saved from some level of abominable practices. That's because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy who desires to allow people to repent and turn. That's Rahab. By the way, that's the Gibeonites. They came to their senses. That ought to show you the repugnant nature of their deliberate, rebellious worship. No matter what they would do, the people of Canaan, all throughout their, their history, would not bow the knee to anyone. They're going to do what they want, when they want, how they want. They'll disregard other things in order to practice what they want. Moses is saying, be careful. God really does desire holiness. Are you familiar with this verse in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Can I just ask you this for a moment as we park here for a second? Do you love this sinful world too much? Has the world's standards become your standards? Do you even take time to think, am I becoming more holy or am I becoming more worldly? You can do something even as simple as, like, do I dress like the world? Now that's, that's doing all of that without saying, well, here's the defined standard. <laughs> are, you, are you living... What kind of music do you listen to? I can know many people for all, all of my Christian life who worship on Sunday and then I don't know what they're listening to when I got in the car with them. You understand that everything is a medium of communication, that you have to be mindful that whether or not the world has influenced that particular medium of communication so that you are holy and you are not influenced in a way that is despicable to God. Has the world's desires become your desires? Do you desire to be satisfied with things on the earth instead of eternal things? 
Has the world's motive for living become your motive for living? Oh, it's about me. It's about what I like and what I enjoy and about making me feel good. We live in probably one of the most predominant me-centered cultures that we could imagine. Now you think back in the land of Canaan, I'll tell you what, they were doing it on religious worship, and you know what the worship today is? The worship of, them, of, of people and themselves. How dare you do this and remove this because it's like you're, you're taking part of me away. Your job is to make people feel good. Well, clearly after here, if you're visiting this morning, you realize our job is not about feeling, is it? It's about stating what God says. Do we care about how God feels about the world? You better believe we do. Because it is by mentioning these things that we understand the predicament of how gracious God was to redeem people who were under this kind of circumstances. Can I ask you one more question? Is, do you, is all your joy found in a place that'll just be destroyed? You're anchoring all your satisfaction, all of your pleasure, all of your earthly pursuits, all of your money, all of your mental energies on things that God is just going to say, this is gone. It's going to be destroyed. If we put our joy in things that will be destroyed, our joy will only be found in those things and not in God. And that is so dangerous for us. We must delight in his ways and his purposes so that we are not living lives filled with consequences of our own behavior. Now let me cover this. I want to talk about the long-suffering of God to the people of Canaan. We know who they were. We know what they were doing. But look at Genesis chapter 15, and this is in the context of Abraham wandering in the land that God had brought him to. And it says, and they, Abraham says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And of course, the, the, the people of Israel were going to go off into, into the land of Egypt. They were going to stay there for 400 years. But even preceding that, their wickedness was continuing to add up. So over 400 years... God gave people an opportunity to repent, to turn to him, to embrace him as king. Remember, in the life of Israel right now, this is a theocracy. And a theocracy means God was king. They had no earthly king. God himself was king. That's why Joshua gets instructions from God, because God was king. And when the king says, do this, you have no right to say, I'm not going to do that. God was incredibly gracious. His patience was on display because of the life of the Canaanite people. Over 400 years, they had practiced this abomination in his sight. His character was to be seen in his people. You must obey me. You will be my representatives in the land. Israel was always and forever designed in God's purposes to be a model nation of holiness. God's justice and holiness are revealed in those kinds of commands. You consider the long-suffering and patience of God with the children of Israel, do you not, when they're in the wilderness? Hopefully you consider that kind of patience with you in your life, 
Because I know that if you're like me, anything like me, you've struggled this last week at various points. You've sinned at various points in last week. And for you and I to all of a sudden somehow go, no, no big deal. Don't repent and not take this before the Lord and deal with our soul. There's something wrong with that. Well, God, in his kindness, is giving us time to, to, to deal with our own soul. Uh, I love this text, and I came across it. I just thought to myself, we've got to read this text together. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 30, just follow, and you can write it down, but follow with me. Here's Israel in, in, in Isaiah chapter 30, and the previous context is the rebellion of God's own people. So remember, God has patience with the Canaanites. He has patience with his own people. Look at what he says to, to, his, to his people. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. And when you turned and, and when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. Believers, God's patience is ever abundant for people. He waits to display his mercy over and over. He longs to display it. When somebody comes and recognizes even abominable practices before God and repents of their soul, we don't, we're not, we're, we're, God is so pleased that they would put away that life and embrace Jesus Christ. But notice the practices of his people. There will be a people who, who abide in Israel, who will listen to their teacher, they will hear his voice. They will walk in his way. And they will look at what they once idolized in their life and they will be repulsed by their idolization. Believer, this is us. This is the practice you and I must have and, and the things that we idolize in this world. We have to look at them and be repulsed by them and say, I cannot idolize these things. Be gone! And remove them. And it's through the removal of the idolatry of our own lives, whether it was the people of Canaan or God's people or us today, we shall have no other God before us but the one true God. He longs to be gracious. And he is. He, his mercy gets put on display over and over and over. I love what 2 Peter 3, 9 says, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't read this and simply say to yourself, well, God will just keep waiting. Can, can you hear me just say this? God has always had a defined plan. And in that divine plan, 
There is a point of which abominable practices of the world come under the judgment of God. Make no mistake, believer. We are still under God's kingly authority. When he says goes, goes. Just because he has yet to deal with it doesn't mean he's not going to deal with it. But our job in the midst of that, living as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, is to share the life-giving truth of the gospel so that people can be saved from the destruction that will come from a just judge. And yes, our world will come under the judgment of the holy gaze of the Almighty. Make no mistake, there should be a sense of urgency of gospel ministry because there will be people that you and I know that will be destroyed. And yet, we could share the gospel with them. Don't fall into this trap of the individual who says this question and, and calls into question God's character. How can God be good and command such evil things? See, I don't even think that's the right question. See, because we, we understand God does this in other equations. He did it at the flood. He did it at Sodom and Gomorrah. In this case, in the conquest of the land, he asked his people to be the agents on his behalf. God does things in ways that, that he chooses. But I don't think the question is whether God's character should be called into play. I think the real question is this. Does God, the creator who made you and knows what is best for you, have the right to tell his creation to abandon wickedness? And the answer to that question is yes. Our divine authority written down for us so it's made no mistake, is that God is the one who knows us, made us, and knows what's best for us. We don't have the right to judge the judge. We have to be people who are submissive to God's word. In all of its parts, we are living in a culture where morality is calibrated by sinful consensus. Where you get a whole bunch of group of people together, and Romans 1 Verse number 31 says, and they practiced these things and they encouraged everybody to practice them with them. Morality appears to be being legislated by, by, by a sinful moral consensus. The people of God have to be different. Their morality is calibrated by the truths of the living God whose revelation is given to us from Genesis to the end of Revelation, so that we might know him and know his ways, so that we don't get sidetracked. Created beings do never have the right to tell the creator what is right and wrong. No matter what, if the culture says, well, we define marriage like this. Well, we should have a problem when God says marriage isn't defined that way. And we can, do, we can be proponents of the reality of God's moral agenda. He's not asking us to do the conquest. Please understand that. But he is calling us to stand for what he says is right and what, and what he says is wrong. He is calling us not to some mediocrity or shrinking back in the midst of a culture like this. And he calls us to say what is wrong is wrong and what is right is right. 
Yes, I can imagine that that will make us somewhat of a disfavorable people at times. But if you say it understanding and, you, and you're motivated by putting his mercy on display, saying God wants to save all of humanity because he saved me and I was part of that world that was going to be destroyed. And yet he found me in my life and, and I repented and I joined his kingdom and I became committed and he is now using me to be set apart for his holy purposes. Believer, remember, a lack of devotion to God's word and to his ways has serious consequences. It had so for the people of Israel in the devoted to destruction because their practice it had now, according to Genesis 15, their cup of abomination had become full. And there is a point where only God knows when that cup gets full. And when it does, God will surely, as the righteous, holy judge that he is, will bring all things into account, both for our world and for us as believers. And we will stand accountable for the things that we have pursued. And I will challenge you again this morning that if we have a lack of devotion to his word and his ways, we could be in serious consequences. And I would challenge you, what does that mean for you? People who are set apart, who love the Lord your God, be holy as God is holy. Share the gospel. Praise God when one soul at a time they come to embrace repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The time is short. The time is now to continue to share that faith. The time is now to be serious about the holy living that we ought to have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your ways and your word Lord, we learn so much instructively for you in, in these passages to understand sacred use. Father, we are yours. Lord, help us to continue to, to rid ourselves of, of our own idolatry that you continue to sanctify our souls. Make us a people who are holy. Lord, give us a continued desire to follow you in every way in the quiet moments of our life when no one else is watching. Lord, and help us always to remember, you are God alone. You make the rules. You are the righteous judge. You are the holy one. And we bow in allegiance before you and just desire to be used as your vessels. In your name we pray, amen.